From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Just one week until Election Day and the push to ensure election integrity ramps up. I literally had one watcher get on their knees and follow my wires just so that I could prove to them that it is a closed network, that it's not connected to the Internet. Later, we head to Vail in the highest botanic gardens in North America. In a changing climate, what should you know to get your garden ready for the changing seasons? It's really kind of using your mind and, and thinking about how you can work with the environment and with the weather to make your garden survive. Like considering perennials over annuals to save a surprising amount of water. What you get on a daily basis from Colorado Public Radio is thanks in large part to an ever-growing and dedicated community of support. As a member, you do more than listen. You help fund CPR. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Election Day is one week from today, and perhaps now more than ever, the voting process is under a magnifying glass of scrutiny. County clerks say that's a good thing, and they welcome the chance to show skeptics how the system works. Public affairs reporters Vinta Berklin and Caitlin Kim explore election integrity in the latest episode of Purplish, CPR's podcast about politics and policy. Fun fact. Colorado has the second highest voter participation rate in the nation. It also has universal paper ballots and post-election audits, bipartisan teams of election judges, and lots of different ways to vote. All of that adds up to what most experts call the gold standard of elections. But that hasn't stopped lots of people from having lots of doubts. I can't honestly say that before I had this job, I could have defended the system. I think that people just think that they, people collect ballots and then they go through them and it's not really like that. It's so much more secure. And when you talk to the people who work in Colorado's election system, what stands out is how proud they are of it. Yeah, I, what makes me feel best about it is that the whole process is bipartisan, and it's all people who care about voting, regardless of your party. And everybody who's here, from the people who collect the votes like us, the staffers who manage the warehouse, to the people behind us opening the ballots, they're all about getting the votes processed. Two years after the denials and falsehoods that followed the 2020 presidential election, Colorado and the country are facing an unprecedented number of challenges to the election system. And right on the front lines are the local officials who work to combat disinformation and build back trust in the security and reliability of the process. I literally had one watcher get on their knees and follow my wires just so that I could prove to them that it is a closed network, that it is air gap, that it's not connected to the internet. So with ballots already sent out across Colorado, early voting underway, how does voting really work behind the scenes in Colorado? And what are the pressures weighing on the system this year? I'm Benta Berkland. I'm Caitlin Kim. And I want to introduce a special guest joining us to talk everything elections, our colleague Matt Bloom. Hey there. 
Thanks so much for joining us. And Matt, you have spent the last, what is it, four months, I think? Yes. <laughs> yes four months, four a months. quarter of the year, learning everything you could about how voting works in Colorado how these ballots are counted, and how they're secured. Yeah, my goal there was to gather as many questions from people as I could about the system and try to get them some answers. And I can say without a doubt that I don't think I've ever spent as much time as I have the past four months looking at paper ballots. (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine, yeah. Not what you anticipated, probably, but... If you're a Colorado voter listening to this episode, the odds are good you've already received your ballot. And in this episode, we're going to walk through what happens to that ballot once you've filled it out and it enters the counting system. We're also going to look at some of the disinformation and conspiracy theories swirling out there about the system and why they're just not true. And we'll talk about what clerks are trying to do to amp up transparency and reassure skeptics. And finally, we'll get to how this entire issue of election security and integrity is playing out in some of the state's biggest races this cycle. So you guys ready for all that? Let's let's do it. Matt, I wanted to start with the woman who anchored your documentary, Haley Livermore. She's representative, I think, of the relationship a lot of voters have with the election system. You're totally right. She has voted in every election since she turned 18, and she trusts that her vote is counted and that everything is done fairly behind the scenes. But she admitted to me that she really didn't understand how the process works. And I guess it would be good to know, (laughs) like, a certain form of voting is more secure or less secure. How do we know that the ballots are safe? And an important thing to know about Haley is she has parents who, after the 2020 elections, started repeating these accusations that they heard being thrown around in conservative media that the election system here in Colorado can't be trusted. Mm, Interesting. Yeah. And even though she didn't share those doubts with them, they made her want to understand things better. Just for, you know, especially because that information would be good to be able to tell people like my parents who are now concerned about it a little bit to be able to say, like, here's the process and and here's how they can know that we're getting votes from people who are eligible and not from people who are dead or a dog or whoever. Yeah, we hear those concerns from a lot of folks and a lot of your reporting really does answer that question. How does the system make sure that only eligible people are voting? And apparently not dead people or dogs. So as we're walking through the process, Let's talk a little bit about some of the things we hear most frequently when people raise doubts about elections. The steps where if you don't really know how things work, voters might worry that it's vulnerable to fraud. That's right. So the first big thing overarching is that every step that involves handling the ballot is done by a team of bipartisan election judges. So a Republican and a Democrat are there when they open the envelope and get that ballot into the system. The thinking there, I believe, is that each one keeps the other honest. You can't say that Democrats are stealing votes or that Republicans are stuffing ballot boxes if there's always someone from the other party watching each other. And frankly, both are responsible for handling the ballots. Yeah. And one of the heartening things was talking to some of these judges about how much they liked working in these bipartisan teams. Mm -hmm. They were often quite friendly with each other. There were jokes being thrown around very collegial, and it helped some of them realize how secure this whole process is. No one's left alone with the ballots. Right. This next critical step in the process, 
that, that we hear a lot of concerns about are these ballot draw boxes, and they're located throughout the state. You can just put your ballot in there. I imagine many listeners use these drop boxes because Colorado has hundreds of them, and it is how the majority of voters return their ballots. There are people in conservative circles and in media in particular who've started urging voters not to use the drop boxes, claiming they're not secure. Colorado law is super strict about security around these boxes. They have to be kept under 24-hour video surveillance. Mm -hmm. There's even a law about good lighting. So anyone reviewing these videos can see everything clearly at can't all hours. can't be at the end of a dark alleyway where no one can see it. <laughs> exactly. Or, you know, hiding behind some wall or something. The only time they're emptied is with that bipartisan team of election workers who also fill out something called a chain of custody log. That's a document that both the Republican and Democrat election worker have to sign when they retrieve ballots. Let's turn to another area where voters and politicians who doubt the credibility of elections in Colorado have also raised significant concerns. I think it may be one of the key, if not the key sticking point, and it centers around fears of this certain step in the process when the ballots are scanned and then also counted. These are the machines that actually analyze the marks on your ballot and determine whether you filled in the bubble, say, for Michael Bennett or Joe O'Day or someone else. And then they count up how many people actually voted for each of them. It's kind of like those bubble standardized tests that we, ha- we all had to take. Right. And I think we've all probably heard this. People are worried that because these machines rely on software, there could be a way to tamper with these votes from what you have on the paper ballot to what's counted. I don't know how frequently you heard this idea that these machines are somehow secretly connected to the Internet and manipulated that way. And of course, that's a false conspiracy theory, and it's certainly spread far and wide. Absolutely. I heard that as a concern many, many times. And what you realize when you start asking election workers and county clerks about this is that there are all sorts of checks in place, both before the election and after the election, to make sure that the count on these machines comes up exactly with what's on the ballots. We test every piece of equipment that we might be using in the election. That's the Eagle County clerk, Regina O'Brien. She's a Democrat. The process she's describing is the same in every county. And it starts with running these sample ballots through the scanners. We make sure that the system count matches the hand count. And if it doesn't match, you need to resolve it or you don't use that equipment. Um, So it matches 100%. And then we zero out those results and you don't touch the system until you're actually tabulating live ballots. After the election, counties go back and check again. So they compare the choices on actual paper ballots to what the machines said those choices were. And with again, with a bipartisan board, verify that how the system tabulated those randomly selected paper ballots matches what is on the physical piece of paper. And we've done this in Colorado for years, this pre-election testing, the post-election auditing, where we're making sure that the system is tabulating properly. As an aside, and I think this is kind of interesting, in the off-year election, so 2021, some counties actually ran their ballots after the election on a competitor's machine. So not the main machines the county was using, but just another way to check that those machines were accurate. 
So I actually got to sit in on one of the audits. And it was funny because there was one ballot that didn't match that they found. But when they pulled it out to look at it, guys, this ballot was crazy. It was a mess. The person had crossed out one candidate's name and then they drew an arrow from a filled out bubble with another X on it to another candidate in a different race. Super confusing. And it was clear to see that the problem wasn't that the machine was corrupt. It was that it was sort of a guess exactly what the voter had even meant. Mm. So I guess this seems like a good time to remind people that if you do mess up your ballot, do not try and get creative (laughs) as a way to try to fix it. Just throw the ballot out and go vote in person. Colorado does allow you to do that. Matt, anyway, let's talk about another part of the system where people often have concerns, which is making sure that the ballot that is counted was actually filled out by the voter it was sent to. Yeah. So this is called the signature verification process. And in my opinion, one of the most mind numbing. (laughs) (laughs) You wouldn't sign up to do that, huh? No. It's just a bunch of people staring at computer screens, looking at the signature on the outside of each ballot envelope and comparing it to a signature on a file for that voter. Super important. The step is also done in bipartisan teams. So there's a Republican and a Democrat looking at each signature and comparing it to ones that you have on state file, all to look for potential fraud. And am I right, Matt, that these are the signatures at the DMV or just other things you've signed over the years that are going to be on file? Yes. And they are able to look at a range of signatures over time. So if your signature has changed, like a lot of people's does, Mm -hmm. then they can look at different samples over time to help confirm it. Okay. And it's interesting to point out that about 1% of signatures are disputed. And in those cases, they go to another level, another team of bipartisan election judges to look into it. So then if this additional team can't figure out the signature, they think it doesn't match, then the state sends postcards, text messages, urging that voter to fix the situation, right? They can prove that they were the person who signed this envelope. Absolutely. And if you don't respond, your vote's not going to get counted. So you definitely want to pay attention to that. So it's funny that we're talking about this right now because (laughs) I just found out that I had one of my signatures thrown out on a ballot Mm. in my home state. I just found out about that in 2020 and it was like from 2008 or 2004. (laughs) Hopefully Colorado would notify voters sooner, right? I'm guessing Colorado does notify voters sooner than that, right? Absolutely. So, Matt, I'm just curious, after all the time you spent just sort of steeping yourself and how the process works behind the scenes, what's your big takeaway? What really sticks out in your mind about the entire process? I really keep thinking about all the election workers that I got to meet. A lot of them had similar stories of knowing nothing about how elections work. Maybe they heard a conspiracy theory or a family member started raising some doubts But they took action. They got the job. They wanted to see for themselves what goes into counting ballots. And it was very reassuring to everyone that I talked to to actually see the paper trail and the checks and balances that we have here in Colorado. And as a voter, that was really reassuring to me as well. Okay, we've gone over the many checks and balances in place to make sure Colorado's elections are accurate and secure. But as you've both said, this hasn't stopped lots and lots and lots of conspiracy theories from spreading. And Benta, this is an area where you've done a lot of reporting. Yeah, I've talked to plenty of clerks recently to hear what they're encountering this particular year. And it's a lot, in part because some of the major figures in this national election denial world are based here in Colorado. For some 
crazy reason, we've also exported some of the most notorious election deniers that started here, that started their garbage here, and it spread across the country. That's Matt Crane. He's a Republican. He's a former county clerk. He now heads the Colorado County Clerks Association. And he really doesn't pull his punches when he's talking about this. No, he doesn't. I watched him testify in front of a Senate committee back in August about threats against election workers and the attacks on our election systems. And there, like here, he's talking about people like Tina Peters, the Republican clerk in Mesa County, who you've covered a lot. Yes, I mean, she's facing criminal charges for allegedly tampering with her county's voting machines. And she says it was her effort to try to uncover fraud. But there are other people in this movement based in Colorado. There's a far-right podcaster who was the first person to claim that Dominion voting systems stole the election through its machines. Worth pointing out, Dominion Voting Systems is headquartered in Denver. Mm -hmm. Then there's the U.S. Election Integrity Plan. It's a canvassing door-to-door effort of citizens trying to audit the election to prove voter fraud. We're in this situation right now for two reasons. One, because of a lie, of a stolen election, which absolutely is a lie. The second, and probably as big a reason, is a failure of leadership for people who know the truth to stand up and speak the truth. That's why Crane says it's even more important than ever before for clerks across the political spectrum who are on the forefront of running elections to be open and transparent. He says clerks in Colorado and across the nation have harder jobs right now because they're being inundated with open records requests and hostile questions and also facing personal threats. I just want to butt in here and say that doing reporting at any of these facilities is a huge slog. You have to ask for permission to enter in advance. You have to get buzzed in through a locked door. You have to sign a visitor log. And once you get inside, there are even more doors you have to get buzzed in through. It is just a ton of layers to get into these places. So you can tell that they have their guard up. Right. It does sound like a fortress of some kind. Yes, for sure. (laughs) And, you know, there have been stories from around the country that election conspiracy theorists have been trying to get jobs as poll watchers and election judges. Are you seeing that here? Yeah, I think it's happening in Colorado, or it certainly was in the primaries, especially with poll watchers. The Republican county clerk in Weld County said every one of her Republican poll watchers for the primary in June had ties to election conspiracy groups. But she actually said that it was a good thing. You know, she's pretty upbeat about it. So I took full advantage of it, to be honest. I was like, thank you for giving me these people so that I can show them what actually happens and show them. I mean, I literally had one watcher get on their knees and follow my wires just so that I could prove to them that it is a closed network, that it is air gap, that it's not connected to the internet. So I asked clerks what kind of conspiracies or theories they're hearing right now for this election and what they're trying to be prepared for. And one that's apparently making the rounds right now that they said is new is urging voters to intentionally make a mistake when filling out their ballot. So that's Maybe you make a mistake, put an initial. Matt was talking. I don't know if you should do the arrows, but the idea is make a mistake. Man, that sounds exactly like the ballot that I saw. But why would you intentionally do that to your ballot? So this goes back to the fear that the ballot scanners and these tabulators are corrupt and somehow manipulated by the Internet. So this idea, which is false, is that if you make a mistake on your ballot, it would somehow trigger this particular ballot being hand counted. 
But for anyone attempting to do that or thinks about doing that, the Eagle County clerk, Regina O'Brien, says it will not be counted by hand. If a ballot is mismarked, it will go to adjudication on the same uh, tabulation systems that we use. And the uh, uh, when it goes to the adjudication station, a bipartisan team of election judges looks at the ballot image to determine voter intent. And if it's clear to the judges what the voters' intent was, they will cast a vote for that candidate or that, that measure. Okay, so just to be crystal clear, it still goes through the machine. You're just making additional work for the election judges. Yes, I, I think that's safe to say, yes. And then another conspiracy circulating, and it's sort of related to this, it's people telling each other to put some kind of identifying mark on their ballot a symbol, a star, like something that you'd want to put on the ballot. A smiley face. Happy face, smiley face, something. (laughs) So if their county posts the ballot image online, which several counties already do to be transparent, this individual could go look online and see how their ballot was counted and kind of make sure it was counted the way they wanted it to. But I thought the whole entire thing about elections here in the United States is that we're supposed to have a secret ballot. So what you're saying is people are doing something that would make their ballot identifiable, at least to them, and maybe some of their friends. Right, potentially. But even if someone did try to do that, it wouldn't work because the clerk's offices would redact any identifying marks before posting an image of a ballot. Benta, it sounds like both of those conspiracy theories come from people who don't actually understand how ballots are counted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think that is right. And then one other conspiracy that's been circulating for a while, so this is not new, and I think a lot of people maybe have heard this, it's a push to get voters to vote in person on Election Day, also later in the day, too. But why would they want to do that? From watching the system behind the scenes, it seems like having an overwhelming flood of last-minute ballots would just really slow things down, like the signature verification step. First off, I would say a lot of people do vote on Election Day, so there's nothing wrong with that. And I have to admit, I am someone who drops off my ballot on Election Day. I guess I'm a procrastinator. (laughs) Also, I like to get all the mailers just for my job. I like to see all the mailers that are coming in. But Election Day is probably the largest volume day. People could be on the fence. They're looking at their ballot. We have a lot of ballot initiatives, and we usually do as a state. Some people feel nostalgia, and they just like to vote on Election Day. You know, I actually spoke with one voter up in Greeley. He's a black man, and he says he's going to go in person on Election Day because his ancestors fought for the right to vote, and he wants to go in person to represent. But this conspiracy, Benta, isn't about any of those reasons, correct? So, no, this theory is not based on that. According to Matt Crane from the Clerks Association, it's based on this false idea that if your ballot is turned in late, there's less time for some bad actor to tamper with your ballot. And so he said what he's heard in conservative circles is this idea that if Republicans turn their ballots in early, the people running elections will somehow, quote, know how much to stuff the ballot boxes to thwart that turnout and in essence, ensure that Democrats win. Which, of course, from everything I watched in my visits to election offices with the bipartisan teams at each step, I mean, it's just not at all based in the reality of how our elections work. And I think one thing about that is I hear from clerks that they really want to try to make this information available to people across the state. And they're trying to take these extra steps to counter misinformation and just be as transparent as possible. 
I was actually really surprised to see how much they're doing. Mm-hmm. Some counties are starting to live stream video of every process on Facebook. It's a little boring to watch because it's just paper ballots moving across the <laughs> table for nine hours. But many managers think this is a good way to catch people on Facebook um, who might want to watch from home. They're also offering more guided tours of their facilities ahead of elections and after elections to let people come in, look behind the curtain and ask simple questions about the process. And then there's a human there to answer them. (laughs) And the main thinking there is that hopefully they can just humanize this whole process for people who may only be getting their information about elections from a sensational news story or like a social media post from their uncle. We've talked about how voting works and hopefully shed some light on key questions and conspiracies that are circulating right now. But before we end this episode, I do think we should briefly touch on how this issue has played out in political races in Colorado this year. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's so fascinating that unlike a lot of other states, the Republicans in Colorado that believed and really promoted these false claims of a stolen election didn't win their primaries. Thank the Mesa County clerk, Tina Peters. She lost her primary for secretary of state. Ron Hanks, the state lawmaker who was at the rally at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, he lost his U.S. Senate primary. Right, but it's not totally absent, though. In Congressional District 7, there are recordings that have been circulated of the Republican candidate, Eric Odlin, saying the current government is illegitimate. And when I asked him about this over the summer, he wouldn't say whether he believes the 2020 election was rigged or not. He just kept saying, we need to look forward. Yeah, I feel like we hear that a lot from certain Republican candidates, the people who maybe have cast out on elections or maybe they haven't, but they kind of want to sidestep the whole issue. They don't want to say one way or another. And so they will say, let's just move forward. Let's right. just move forward. Or exactly. we've heard Heidi Ganahl, who's running for governor, say Biden is the president, but she won't say whether he's the legitimate president. Right. And Odlin has said that Biden is the president. And that was at the recent Nine News debate in that race, where he also said he has, quote unquote, nuanced his perspective since those earlier comments. And then, of course, you have two of our current Republican members of Congress, Lauren Boebert and Doug Lamborn, who joined objections to and voted against certifying the 2020 election results of certain states, even after a Trump-supporting mob attacked the Capitol. Not everyone in the Republican delegation, though, is is on board with that. Congressman Ken Buck, he's always defended Colorado's elections. He's done informational calls with Republican voters to go through the process and say it's secure, although he has not said whether he believes other state systems are secure. Mm -hmm. And then I also want to point out Barbara Kirkmeyer, the Republican running in Colorado's new 8th congressional district. She's been very vocal that Biden is the legitimate president. She does not believe voting machines are connected to the Internet, and she does think the presidential election was fair and secure. Right. And we've been talking about all these Republicans, I think, just for even sake, the Democrats all have said they support and they think that our election system is secure. So I will say, though, talking to voters, some Coloradans brought up this idea of wanting to protect democracy and voting against election deniers when I spoke with them about the issues that are important to them. But this was never the number one issue. And Mm -hmm. I think that tracks with a poll the New York Times did recently that found that while voters overwhelmingly believe American democracy is under threat, that's not what's driving them at the polls. And very few people call it the nation's most pressing problem. That doesn't surprise me when you've got the economy and high prices and cost of living Mm -hmm. and 
We just looked at studies on learning loss during the pandemic for school children. There's just so many issues that are impacting people that voters have to grapple with that in addition to this election denial movement. And I think it's worth pointing out that even though it might not be people's top issue when they fill out their ballot, when it does come up for a lot of families like Haley's, when I interviewed her and we eventually brought her parents into the story too to let them have a conversation, it was clear that they still had a really tough time talking about this whole process. So it definitely has an impact on families still and it's on people's minds. One thing I did want to touch on is that this whole election fraud denial movement has in some ways thwarted legitimate discussions and concerns about our existing election system and the processes and how they could be improved and policy discussions. Because if someone brings up a concern or or something they don't like in the system, automatically people just close their minds to it like, oh, you're an election denier. But there are still legitimate questions for any processes that exist. And of course, any system can be improved. I think that's very true. Matt, I know you've been really sort of studying the system. I'm sure you saw things that you were like, yeah, they can like tweak that or fix that. Oh, 100%. I got to talk with a county clerk who one of the first things she did when she got into office was hold a community meeting. And it was in a diverse neighborhood. People were really angry because they didn't have a ballot box in their neighborhood. And Mm -hmm. because of that, they mistrusted the system because it wasn't accessible to them. And I think that's just to your point, Benta, concerns like that get crowded out by some of the louder voices we hear denying elections. And there's a lot of policy nuances around voter rolls and how people register and where they register. So we'll be covering those policy discussions definitely as they come up at the state legislature. But I wanted to end on a little bit of a positive note for this episode. We've talked so much about people not trusting elections. What I've heard from clerks and election workers is that one of the best ways to counter that, which we've mentioned clerks are doing this, inviting people to get involved with the process. The Weld County clerk I mentioned earlier, the one who said all of her Republican poll watchers were election conspiracy theorists. So she said when they first came in in the primary, people sometimes were hostile and aggressive and they had their list of questions and they were trying to uncover stuff. Then we had a statewide recount, if you guys remember, for the Mm -hmm. Secretary of State's race. So these poll watchers came back. She said a lot of them just had a different tone and a different approach. A couple of the individuals actually talked to her personally, and they apologized for how they treated her. And they had said that they came in with a closed mind and with certain assumptions. And she accepted their apology, and she thinks that that was a really positive experience. I heard from a lot of Republican election workers that had a similar experience, too. Right. And I feel like this is the theme that the both of you have been talking about, that once people actually learn all the checks and balances in the system and how it actually how voting actually works behind the scenes, they are much, much, much more comfortable with it. So this leads to the next question, then. Is it actually hard to get involved as a poll watcher or an election judge? Not necessarily. So election judges are hired by the counties. Counties get a list of names from the state parties. And then poll watchers are nominated by local parties, so the county party chair. So if you're a registered Republican or Democrat, you could probably just reach out to your county chair and tell them you're interested. And if you're unaffiliated, which we know a lot of people are in Colorado, the majority you, <laughs> of people in Colorado are. You can sign up too, and they will uh, gladly take your application. You're going to have to pass a background check, go through training. 
in a lot of places by now, this close to election day, those positions are filled up. But in general, the clerk's offices always need people to help. Matt Bloom joining public affairs reporters Binta Birkelin and Caitlin Kim for Purplish, CPR's podcast about politics and policy. Follow this and all of the episodes wherever you get your podcasts and at CPR.org. And you may want to check out the episode that breaks down the statewide ballot issues. When we come back, we visit the highest botanic gardens in North America, right here in Colorado, and find out how to help your garden weather climate change through the winter. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Rachel Estabrook from the CPR Newsroom. Our podcast, Who's Gonna Govern?, brings you the candidates for Colorado's top offices in their own words. Check it out before you fill out your ballot. Who's Gonna Govern? in your favorite podcast feed. It's a beautiful paradise near Vail's Welcome Center and quaint town square, tucked away just behind Ford Park. Its focus is on sustainable gardening and teaching gardeners of all levels how to have lush and colorful plants without harming the environment. The Betty Ford Alpine Garden is the highest botanic garden in North America. I recently visited to talk with senior horticulturalist and Colorado native Colin Lee. So currently now the garden scene is kind of winding down, but we are having our last push of fall color here in Vail, Colorado. Uh, we have put a majority of our gardens to bed, meaning doing um, perennial cutback, but there's still quite a bit to see and we still have quite a few visitors roaming through the gardens. But the highlight is definitely the fall color here now. Absolutely. It's absolutely beautiful and the wind is blowing with the trees and it's just a, just a beautiful scene. Yeah, definitely a beautiful scene. You know, it's just myself and our senior curator, Nick, who take care of the gardens up here. So just a two-man show. And we do have some interns during the summer, but they've already left. So it's just the two of us kind of putting the gardens to bed slowly before we start to get some snow up here. And um, this is the highest elevation botanical garden in North America. We are, yeah, located at 8,200 feet in the Vale. We are North America's highest botanic gardens. Gives us an awesome opportunity to specialize and focus in alpine plants. We do have a conservation program that focuses on conserving alpine plants in the alpine. We like to bring alpine down to a lower elevation, so for those who might not be willing to climb to the top of a mountain to see these tiny little plants, can come into our garden and get a little taste of uh, alpine environment. I was just curious, um, as a person who's not a native of Colorado, I was surprised when I saw Betty Ford's name on the garden. Can you tell us a little bit about the backstory of that? Yeah, so in 1989, the gardens were dedicated to Betty Ford as former first lady. Is, yeah, former first lady. And it was uh, a tribute to the force because they had a huge part to do with the developing and, um, you know, kind of building of the Vale Valley. They brought a lot of influential people into the valley who ended up putting some money into the valley and are a big part of creating Vale and what it is today. And your garden is actively engaged in the conservation of alpine plants from around the world. That is true, yes. We recently started our conservation program, which is run by Emily Griffel, our conservation scientist. And in the past few years, we've been getting into seed collecting and seed banking of alpine species, as well as developing a list for the entire alpine, um, alpine plants of North America. So we're working with Denver Botanic Garden and a few other botanic gardens to come together and um, put together this alpine strategy, which will lead us in the future of alpine plant conservation and uh, conserving those species that are at risk at the top of the mountains. Then you also have a speaker series? 
Yeah, that is true. During summer, we have our Science Elevated Speaker Series, as well as during winter and through summer and fall, we have rotating exhibits in our education center. And with your speaker series, you recently talked about climate change and the impact on the Colorado River. Yes, we had Brad Udall come and give a great presentation about the future of the Colorado River. He had been traveling all over Colorado and talking about water usage and where water rights and water usage will be going down the road. And it seems like, you know, conservation-wise, we will be coming into a time where, where water is much more restricted and much more um, looked after than previously thought. So, you know, going forward, thinking about the future of gardening, water usage is definitely at the top and that also seems to be a top priority here at the garden to talk about water conservation and just really all of these issues related to climate and how it affects our environment. Definitely, you know, with, with climate change happening, we've seen um, a, few, a few areas in the garden where we need to kind of rethink what we're doing and especially with water usage. So I actually learned yesterday that, you know, an established perennial bed actually uses only seven gallons per um, square foot, mm -hmm. where turf gardens use 17 gallons per square feet to maintain. Mm. So I've been promoting and I have a few presentations about perennial planting and use of perennials over turf grass and annual usage. But in our gardens, we're probably about 90% perennial gardens. So that alone, we cut back big time on our water usage. Um, as well as, you know, going forward, we'd like to redo some areas of the garden, like I'm standing in front of our new crevice garden, mm. International Crevice Garden, which we added a ton of rock here. We've got these really nice cliff faces, mm. nice slopes. So, it, you know, it's, it's taking a landscape and, and using rock to have a big filler instead of having it need to be all plants. You can have a garden look great all times of the year. Um, by, you know, doing a rock garden or crevice garden, which is another one of our specialties here at Betty Ford. Well, one of the reasons I wanted to come out today was because I heard about the garden and it sounded fascinating. And I want people to know that it's here and that it is an option in, in Colorado to visit. But as you talked about climate change, that is still something that affects gardening, personal home gardens. And can you tell us a little bit about how it has been affecting gardening overall in Colorado and kind of what are your suggestions for that person who does have a home garden and who wants to winterize it and be prepared for the next season? Yeah, definitely. No, I think the biggest thing is that we're, we're dealing with with climate change is just unpredictability. In terms of the weather? In terms of the weather. This summer we had a, a great summer rain-wise up here in the mountains, um, but the past two summers was, you know, hot and dry and drought. So it's really kind of using your mind and, and thinking about how you can work with the environment and with the weather um, to make your garden survive. So, of course, you know, in a hot, dry summer, you will need to do some supplemental watering. But I think water usage, again, is the biggest factor with gardening. Um, a lot of people are wasting water and to establish gardens you do need to water quite frequently but i think a lot of people will just turn on their irrigation and you know leave it at one setting the whole time um here at the gardens we actually go through based month to month on the water that we're receiving you know from rain and we'll adjust our uh irrigation clocks that way we're not overwatering or underwatering but watering the precise amount during the summer and not of course wasting water 
So I think going forward, everybody really needs to look at their irrigation usage as a lot of water restrictions. I think they'll be coming in the mountains and down in the front range. So taking a better look at your irrigation system, making some upgrades to your irrigation system and your controller, and really focusing and, you know, having a, a conversation, especially with people who use landscapers, on how they can make a more water-wise garden using perennial plants that are, you know, heavier, um, a little bit more, I guess I'm trying to say, more hardy to the, to the changing landscape environment and don't require enough water as well as having that conversation about what my water usage is. You touched on this earlier. Colorado weather is very unpredictable. Uh, when people come to visit, they say, oh, what should I bring? What should I wear? I say, be prepared for about four seasons in one, possibly in one day <laughs> sometimes. So of course, winter is upon us. So what are the top tips you have for someone wanting to prepare their garden for the winter? What steps should they be taking? You know, for winter preparation, I do like to do um, a fertilizing in late fall. So after you've done your fall cutback, which opens up more space for the fertilizer to actually reach your plants, as you know, it doesn't have to bounce off of all of the reefs, but you can lay down more fertilizer effectively. So I like to feed um, our plants in fall time with a nitrogen heavy fertilizer right before the snow comes down. And then after the first couple dustings of snow and the snow will melt and actually sink that fertilizer wow and be accessible for the plants so it kind of gives them like i like to say it's it's putting them to bed with a full stomach um that way the root systems can elongate and prepare for the winter um a struggling plant you know before winter starts will have a, a lower percentage survival rate if it's going into winter not doing the best so i try to decrease that by giving the plants a little bit of food before winter um, as well as, of course, watering. If you haven't had a lot of rain or snow like we've been getting in the mountains this past time, um, it is important to supplement and water your garden before winter time. Mm. One of the biggest things is dieback of plants over winter due to desiccation or the plant drying up. So you wanna make sure that your garden had a nice thorough watering before completely shutting off your irrigation systems. I'm a novice, so I'm going to be clear on that. I, I'm learning as I go. I've not quite embraced my green thumb yet. But is there any level of planting being done at this point, or do you just kind of hold off until spring or a certain period of time to start looking at planting for the next season? No, that's a great question. You know, um, in fall time, it's always a great time to put in your bulbs. Tulips, daffodils, crocus into your garden bed. Um, planting bulbs in fall is very common. As for the other gardens, we typically do spring planting in the mountains. Fall planting is okay, but our soils tend to shift quite a bit up here. So as I'm looking at the new rock garden we built, this rock garden will probably have the soil shift a few inches over winter and decrease and compact. So we normally do more of a springtime planting, but I'll be putting in a few hundred, maybe even a thousand bulbs in the next week or two here before the ground freezes. So great time to do bulbs. How does the altitude affect plants and greenery? So alpine plants have developed a few features that are, um, you know, kind of unique to higher up. Um, one of the features is you actually will get better colors at alpine um, heights. So the blues are bluer, the reds are redder because of the UV light hitting the plants. So we do have a few plants here, gentians in the springtime that people are just wowed by. So we actually get better colors, more vibrant colors. Um, and then, of course, the higher up you go, the smaller the plants get. So 
Again, as I'm looking in our international crevice garden here, we've got a large bull axe or a large uh, mounding plant. So you'll, you'll come through our gardens and see these nice compact little mounds and little clumps, um, which is a, another trait of alpine plants um, to combat wind at alpine levels. What about bugs? Anything you can tell us about how to manage them so that they don't manage your garden, but also being considerate of the environment? Exactly. So there's there's great practices called um, IPM, Integrated Pest Management, which you can learn more about, of course, online. Or I always tell people to reach out to their local CSU Extension agent. Up here we have our CSU Extension agent located in Eagle, and they do horticultural and small acre management. So if you're looking at something and you have no idea what you're looking at, you can start the conversation with CSU and actually they'll come out and look at your gardens and provide some, um, you know, tips and tricks to, to maintaining your garden and any pests in the garden. So outreach is definitely a big one and using IPM methods, that way we're not just spraying chemicals like I think a lot of people are used to. It may be the quick and easy way, but if you're looking to preserve the environment, um, you need to have a better understanding of what you're dealing with and, and when you can target that issue and appropriate. Well, most of the time when we think about gardening, we think of spring, but I've been in Colorado for 10 years now, actually just over 10 years now. And I don't know, I just kind of feel like there's no real spring here. Uh, I live in Metro Denver and I feel like it's really cold and then it just gets hot one day and it's summer. But uh, what should you be looking ahead to with spring? Spring is, it's very short and comes very rapidly in Colorado. The Fur Ranch has a little bit of a longer spring. But in Vail, it's the snow melts, the plants begin to wake up. Um, we try to get everything really clean, make our garden beds clean, get all the leaves, anything that started to rot over winter. So it's a big cleanup time. And then by that time, we know, you know, it's, it's already June or May, and that is pretty much peak summer for us as the temperatures ramp up. So in spring, it's a really good time to, to get into your beds, make them nice and tidy start beginning your plantings as early as you can if you've got a design ready to go and to get your hands into the soil and then you can pretty much plant all summer but spring is the best time while temperatures are just a little bit low. And just for those who cannot see this beautiful site, there's aspens around, um, you're seeing a beautiful view, mountain landscape and I also understand that you all added two new sections to the garden last year both of which demonstrate how to have visually interesting garden beds that aren't taxing on the local environment. Yes, definitely. So we installed our pollinator garden. So our pollinator garden is a great area for homeowners to come um, if they're looking to, to figure out a plant palette for their future garden. Mm -hmm. And again, we kind of went with a big, bold perennial. It's a 100% perennial garden, so most of these plants will come back. It has great color through midsummer, through the end of summer, and provides a unique um, plant palette that targets pollinator species. So butterflies, bees, different types of flies. It's very, very in tune with the ecosystem and does attract those beneficial pollinators, which seem to be kind of on, on the on the downrise lately. So we're trying to get them to stick around and hang out and bail at this beautiful pollinator garden that we have. And it's really interesting reading about you all, understanding that you all focus on sustainable gardening and trying to be a teaching tool to demonstrate how to have a colorful, lush garden, but also, again, being mindful of the environment and being a good steward of environmental resources. Yes, beauty and brains. 
that's what we're trying to do here. Beauty and brains when it comes to gardening. You know, a lot of people just want big, bold color, and there there is a way to do that, and people can pay a premium to do that. But here we really want people to become invested into their gardens and, you know, interested in what they're growing and proud of what they're growing. So we, we like to take people and take the gardening to the next level mm -hmm. and show that they can have a, a beautiful garden without the, you know, the impact uh, to the earth or without using, you know, conventional methods. We, we do like to show people that there's a different way to do it and there's, there's a better way. Colin, thank you so much for showing me around. You're very welcome. I'm so glad you guys came. Senior horticulturalist Colin Lee taking us through the Betty Ford Alpine Garden in Vail. At 8,200 8, feet above sea level, it's the highest botanic garden in North America, and it's open year-round to visitors. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC.